theology as the knowledge of God in the person of Jesus was what led the Colossians to learn who they were. It had to be revealed to them. They did not come to that knowledge by themselves. They come to know that they were alienated, that they were enemies in their minds. And brothers and sisters, every single Christian had to come to this knowledge at one point. Before we could understand God's grace, we needed to understand who we were. Before one can know the way of salvation, there must be a recognition that one is lost. And that is the condition of all people. That's why Jesus says, Matthew 9, 12, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You see, note that what Jesus meant by this was not that some people needed him and others didn't. That's not Jesus' point. What Jesus meant was that, that we are those who are going to understand their condition are those who are going to understand their need of him. Because that's exactly what Jesus says in the following verse on verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If we were healthy, Jesus would have died in vain. So we need to recognize first who we are, so that we understand our need of him. So if you are here and if you are not a Christian, we want you to know this. That there is a God who created you. There is a God whom willingly or unwillingly, consciously or unconsciously, you have been avoiding and rebelled against. And you need to know that there will be a day that you will be accountable to him. There will be a day that you will face God and you will be accountable for your lives. And there is no way, no possible way, that you can pass God's judgment because you have sinned. But secondly, note this so that we understand exactly the root of our problem. You see when it speaks about evil deeds? It speaks by evil deeds. Note, note this, that our evil deeds are not actually the root of our problem. That's not how this text defines our problem. The root of our problem is defined by two words in this text, which are alienation and enmity. The mind is the location of our problem. This is the root of our problem. Our deeds are just the fruit of our true problem. Do you understand this? Because this will affect greatly what will be the solution for our problem? The solution of our problem is not for just to produce some fruits. is the fact that we have a problem at the root of the tree. And unless we solve that problem, we will never be able to create those fruits. What is at stake is our own heart. You see, we don't just need a makeover in our lives. We need a new life. We don't just need to make a few changes or adjustments in our lives. You see, it's not just a matter of cosmetics. It's a matter of a new identity. This is the guilt that Jesus points to the Pharisees when he says in Matthew 23, 27, 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You see, if we start to produce, if we start to have this religion of morality, trying to produce fruits, we will just be whitewashed tombs. Because the inside continues corrupt. Because our hearts continue unchanged. Our main problem is this. You are an enemy of God. You are alienated from God. And unless you are reconciled with Him, there is no hope for you. So we need to understand that reconciliation with God does not mean primarily, first and foremost, to make us good people. You see, instead reconciliation is the breaking of our alienation or our enmity with God. We need to understand this in order to answer those who still believe in a religion of works. This is very common in Portugal, and I believe that you encounter many people who would say things like this. Why is it that this particular person does not go to heaven since it is so good? Everybody likes him. Why doesn't he go to heaven? It's because people are not understanding what is the root of the problem. The root of the problem is that they are in enmity with God. They have rebelled against God. And because of that, they will never be accepted by God because of their sin, because of their disobedience. And there is no way that they can solve that because they are weak and we're sinners. We need God to act. We need God to act in the person of His Son so that we might have this relationship restored. Do you see the main root or the real problem that we face? It's not just about changing things. It's not just about telling people, behave yourselves. It's about a new life. We believe, therefore, that what is at stake is actually God's glory. When we understand this, when we repent... We are then reconciled with God. We renounce our way of thinking. We renounce our discernment over things. And we fully submit to God's knowledge. In this sinful reality, we must understand what was the root of the problem in the fall. Was that, you see, we were never supposed to have the knowledge of good and evil. (laughs) Which means that we were never supposed to be the ones to determine what is good, and what is evil. You see, morality is not relative. Morality is not subjective. That's why when we come to the text and see in Genesis 3.22, we see actually that for some today might seem positive, but the Bible describes it as something very negative. Because when God speaks, he says, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, In knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So what had man become? Knowers of good and evil. What does this mean? It means that men robbed God of his right to determine what is good and what is bad. And seeking to determine by himself 
in the side by himself. So that's why Juan de Valdez, a, a, a reformer, concludes that it is most just that the man regain what he lost if he should first renounce what he has gained. Which means that our salvation lies on the fact that we renounce to be the owners of our own lives. We renounce to be the owners of this knowledge of good and evil in order to submit to God who determines what is good. Again, morality is not relative. Every time we want to define what is good and evil, we are taking from God the right that only belongs to Him. And this continues to be one of our greatest temptations when the authority that we give to God is dependent on our own reasoning. Do not think, brothers and sisters, that this is just for those who do not believe. It's also for us. Because when we come to a text in Scripture in which we wrestle with, we tend to avoid it. It's our temptation. We tend to give spiritualized um, reasoning in order to avoid what the text says. You see, that's why we need to continually battle with our own hearts so that we submit to Him and realize that He knows and that He is good. That's why we need to be reminded of the correct order of things. First of all, before anything else, we should ask the question, what does God think about this? How does God evaluate this? In the next step, difficult to us, we should say, I believe in order that I might understand. I submit to God even when I don't fully understand it because I know that he is good. So we don't want to live in enmity towards him anymore. We know that he is God. We know that he is the one who created us. And we know that he has the right to define what is good and what is bad. But number two, who we are. See the end of verse 21 and verse 22. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Note once more these contrasts. Once, yet now, you were alienated and enemies. He has reconciled you by wicked works to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Paul says that this new life, this transformation, which allowed us to be reconciled to God was possible how? Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. You see, our problem was so deep that it was necessary for God himself to become man to do what we could never do for ourselves. And note and remember this grace was not cheap. Death was the payment. Jesus paid our ransom with his own life. It was real and it had a high cost. That's why we need to understand how deep our sin is. Because every time we take sin lightly, what we are is the despising Jesus' own death. Every time we think that our sins are not that great, we are saying that his cross was unnecessary. To correctly understand Jesus' death is to understand the dimension of what caused it. Your sin. Do you understand this? Never think that you are better than the Word of God says that you are. 
And I think that we are tempted to this. We are tempted to particularly to confuse God's blessing and God's work of sanctification in our lives with our own virtue. And that's very dangerous. So you see, Jesus didn't die for humanity. This vast entity. Jesus died on your behalf. Jesus died in your place. Jesus died because of your sin. Similarly, still in verse 22, note that reconciliation has a purpose. Reconciliation was not an end in itself. had a purpose. Paul says that it was in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. First note this, because we are reminded the one who fulfills this purpose. That he has saved us in order to present us to himself. You see, he is the actor. He is the one who acts, and he is also the final purpose of his own acts. We are just the recipients of his grace. Secondly, we are reminded that God is the origin and the purpose of our existence. You see, again, it's this idea, in his sight. He saved us to himself. He is the goal. But thirdly, also, note what this text means. Because this idea of presenting us holy and blameless in his sight can have two different connotations. One of them we usually uh, speak about justification. That we become holy because God makes us just, not because we are just in ourselves, but because of who Jesus is. That his own life, his own justice is imputed to us. And although we are not perfect, God sees us as perfect because of what Jesus did. Right? To this we call justification. But there is another way to present us holy and blameless, which is what we call sanctification. Right? It is the process in which God is progressively transforming us in the image of His Son. Right? So the end of salvation is not just justification, but it's also sanctification. We are made right with God so that the image of God might be restored in us. And this occurs progressively, experientially in our lives, until the moment that we are glorified, in which we will be like Him. Right? And I think that in this case, Paul has particularly sanctification in mind. We see this, for example, in Romans 12, 1, where, where Paul uses exactly the same verb, this to present. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, this is proved because this purpose in this text is dependent on a conditional that is presented then on verse 23. This will occur if you stand. Does that make sense? So because it is a conditional, it's not something that is already achieved fully, but it is something that is in the making. 
So when God calls us, He wants to fulfill the purpose that we were created for. We are called to live before God spotless, to present ourselves in a way that pleases Him. And again, the text that we quoted this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.15, And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, although we believe that we are justified, that is, that we are seen as just before God, it does not mean that God's plan is over with us. That he wants now to progressively mold us and to restore his image in our lives. And this takes a whole lifetime until we are finally glorified. So, brothers and sisters, verse 23, number three, how do we live? How we live. Paul tells us that our sanctification depends on this. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. We can see by this exhortation that our progressive sanctification should not be taken for granted. And this is a danger. Our salvation is a gift. Our salvation cannot be lost. Note this, Christian, because this is our comfort. Our salvation cannot be lost because it was accomplished by Christ and is secured in Christ. Never doubt this. You are in Him. He is the one that secures you and sustains you. Nevertheless, never take your salvation for granted. And never take your sanctification for granted. The if reminds us that we can only present ourselves in a way that pleases God under a condition. And I do not believe that Paul is saying this because he is doubtful if they will make it or not. He is pretty sure, like he said to the Philippians, that the one who started a good work in them will complete it. He is exhorting them. This is the way. This is the means by which you will preserve. You see, the true Christian will preserve in this way. What Paul is saying is not that Jesus was not sufficient and needs to be complemented by any work of our own. What Paul is saying is that Christ did not die merely to give us a passport to heaven, but actually to give us a complete new life. Paul wants them to understand that Christ is so unique and so sufficient that nothing else can be added to his knowledge. We can see this because Paul does not ask them to produce love, but to be firm in the faith and in the hope of the gospel. You see this. This is very important. That the fruits are not produced artificially. They are grounded in something deeper. Let me give you this example. Let's go to the beginning of, of the letter. See, see how Paul has already prayed for them before he says this. He says this, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. <coughs> for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of what? 
Note that there is a reason. There are these visible things. Their faith and their love is visible by the way that they live. But there is something at the root that causes those fruits. What is it? Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. And then it says it is bearing fruit and growing all around the world. So what is actually bearing fruit is the word of the gospel. It is this word of the gospel that came to them that gave them a hope. And it is this hope, this invisible hope, that produces then the fruits of faith and of love. You see, if we ask this question, how can the Colossians continue to bear fruit? How can they continue to demonstrate their love and faith? Paul answers, if you continue in the faith and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Do you want to take the light in the fruit of the tree? Take care of the tree and you will have sweet fruits. Every time we live, you see, as if Christ is not sufficient, we are actually saying that we still believe in some sort of gospel of works that is no gospel at all. If I still believe that if I can add something to what Christ has already done, I'm despising everything that he did. You see, we cannot affirm his sufficiency and continue to live in this world as if the world is dependent upon us. And this is a great temptation, isn't it? That we live many times, or we can live many times, as if we were practical atheists, believing that things depend on us. This continues to be, even to me, a constant temptation to believe that something depends on our own achievements. You see, our faith does not have to do with what we do, but what Christ has done. You see, when we meet this Christ, when we meet this Jesus, the Jesus that we spoke this morning, the one who accomplished all that we need, the one who has authority over all things because he has created all things, the one who has authority over all things because he has conquered death, and gain that status of king over all things. When we meet this Jesus who is the origin and the sustainer and holds everything in his hands, how can we believe that anything is dependent on us? But at the same time, how can we live in a way that is not just for him? That he is sufficient, that he is worthy. So brothers and sisters, let us strive even in the midst of our circumstances, even in the midst, for example, of the struggles that you face as a local church, that this gospel continues the same. It is not dependent on your weakness. It is not dependent on your state. It is dependent on his character. And because it is dependent on his character, it is stable because God does not change. Do you see the difference because many times we tend to evaluate things on the basis of our circumstances. And many times we get discouraged because we look too much to ourselves. But then we come again and we meet Jesus. 
And we know that everything in it is in his hands. He did everything that is necessary. That the world is not dependent upon us. And that the gospel continues as beautiful and as good news as they were before in spite of our circumstances. So brothers and sisters, let us strive to live according to the new life that we have in Christ. Because he is worthy. Because he is sufficient. And because it is good to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with thanksgiving. Because every time that we are reminded of who you are, every time we are reminded of your works, we continue to stand in awe before you. We stand in awe before your grace and your love and mercy towards us. And that's why we come to you and call you Father. Because you have saved us, redeemed us through your Son, and adopted us in him. Father, we come also humbly and with contrite hearts, recognizing that we still are many times tempted to evaluate things on the basis of ourselves. Oh, Father, encourage us with your word. Encourage us in your Son. Strengthen us in our own weakness. That in our weakness, we might be strong because we rely in your strength. Father, sustain us. And we ask a blessing on this church. that you might be present among these brothers and sisters and that you might continue to use them so that the gospel might be, be, continue to be preached faithfully from this pulpit, that you might continue to edify your local church here and use them powerfully for the salvation of souls. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.